Well, good morning, gathering of the redeemed. And uh, it is always a good morning uh, when you're redeemed. Our future is sure. Our hope is secure as we rest steadfastly in the love of God, which is found in Christ Jesus. I trust that all of you are doing well and in relative good health. I pray more importantly that your spirits are in good health and um, that you are using this time um, as an opportunity to just build yourself up in the knowledge of God and uh, our faith, which is uh, found in the Lord Jesus. I want, I want you to know that I miss each and every one of you dearly and you are you're in my thoughts very regularly you're in my prayers uh, you're on my heart I, I miss each and every one of you I long to be back to together with you again soon and you know when our worship is uh, so impacted like this uh, it's always a good reminder for us all to continue to be in a spirit of prayer individual prayer, family prayer, corporate prayer, wherever we can, and, and raise our requests and needs um, up to the Father during this time. It's also important at this time to be in good fellowship with one another, even with the limitations that we have. Uh, lean in on the internet resources that, as we have uh, had before us. And uh, additionally, the traditional, you know, phone calls, uh, notes, uh, text messages, maybe whatever we can do to keep each other encouraged during this uh, unique time. Of course, be in the Word as well. Uh, don't rely on just Sundays being the time when you open your Bible, but each day work through maybe the Psalms or the Proverbs, which give so much rich wisdom for this challenging time. And then one other thing I wanted to mention is, is be worshiping as well. We're going to talk a little bit about worship this morning in our introduction how to incorporate the musical aspect of this. You will see when we are studying the attributes of God that music is the very natural response to each and every one of these attributes. And I'll be hinting at a couple of different songs that can help us uh, during this time. But that's just some advice there. I wanted to mention also briefly, if you wanted to take this study a little deeper, there's a lot of good books available. Tozer is a really great author on the um, attributes of God here. Let me make sure I don't cover that. Somebody asked why I wear my wedding ring on my right hand. I don't. That's my left hand today. I had the screens reversed, but I can never, uh, I can never figure out which way I can turn the book here or, or whatever. But anyway, uh, Tozer, The Knowledge of the Holy, just a little quick skim read uh, if you want to study the attributes of God. Or you can go a little deeper with his book, uh, The Attributes of God. And this is... Um, actually volume one of a two volume set so you can see that that can be um, a little bit of effort there of course the great standby aw pink attributes of god and he works through all of those uh, attributes very carefully and then i wanted to tell you i really enjoyed uh, if you want to take a heavyweight uh, look at uh, the knowledge of god it's a book entitled none like him john feinberg uh, this is a big one and but it, it covers every aspect to include the attributes of God. But you can, you can and there's others, you can take um, a look at those uh, if you have some downtime here where you're able to do some extra reading. But um, let's just pray as we begin uh, this morning and uh, ask God's blessing upon time of great national and even worldwide need. Lord, uh, help us to, to be... Uh, the church indeed, even though we are separate right now, uh, bind our hearts together, even this morning as we study around your word, Lord, take uh, help us to take full advantage of this time. Let us grow. Let us learn. 
And uh, let us truly stand out at this time as people who are who are defined as your children and who reflect you and uh, your very attributes. And we pray this um, in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. All right. Well, my heart is very full today. If you would be making your way to John chapter 4, uh, no doubt our, our worship and our fellowship time is affected during this time. But uh, you'll see in John chapter 4 here that there's a sense in which that is okay. Uh, this is what we do as children of God. We are worshipers. We are worshipers at heart, at the core of our being. We have been recreated uh, as worshipers of God. And so the location is no doubt impacted today, but the fact of who we are and our identity uh, is not impacted. I'm going to be looking at the fourth chapter of John. And of course, you know, kind of the, the context of this. This is the woman at the well. And we're, we're not going to focus so much on the uh, interaction that Jesus had with her, where he kind of revealed to her her true situation and her true need of, of redemption. But you remember that he kind of calls her out on a lifestyle there and addresses her very directly. And then she responds to him in verse 19, where she says, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, of course, referring to Mount Gerasim in, in uh, Samaria. And your people, that is the Jews, say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem shall you worship the Father. You worship that which you do not know. We worship that which we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. This is going to kind of be the focal point of our, of our work today in verse 24. We're going to just be looking at those three simple little words. God is spirit. But you'll note that he calls for worshipers. He wishes to be worshipped, and he wishes that we worship in spirit and in truth at a minimum. Worshiping in spirit means that we have a spirit that has been made alive, of course, by the spirit of God, and that it is a sincere spirit, a true spirit, a heartfelt spirit, and that's what our worship ought to be. But our worship also ought to be grounded in the truth. And this is what Jesus refers to here. And it's interesting. He says that twice about spirit and truth in verse 23. And then in verse 24, he says it again. But couched between there is this phrase at the beginning of verse 24, God is spirit. I've entitled this lesson this morning, Our Spiritual God. And I don't want to sound too far out or far-fetched here. You'll see what this means uh, very, very early on as we consider the spirituality of our God, that God exists as a spirit. Now, this is the only place in the God being called spirit as part of his essential nature. In Hebrews, we read of the eternal spirit, Hebrews 9.14. And here, this woman at the well gets a theology lesson, as it were, after she has uh, had her life situation addressed. And he begins to define what true worship is. You must worship the true and living God, and God is spirit. 
And this is a theology lesson that he's trying to give this woman today. And so our purpose is we have to answer the question, what, what are we referring to here by the spirituality of God? When God, when Jesus says God is spirit, what do we mean by that? Well, I've defined that in your notes and hopefully you had a chance to print those notes off this morning, uh, as we, as we began the, the service today. And I want to thank Nick for making that available again there. Just another shout out there. But the, the definition in your notes, you can see there if you have that is the spirituality of God is that aspect of his immaterial nature. That's what we're referring to here, first and foremost, that it is his immaterial nature. Having no physical parts, no dimensions, and no boundaries, and being invisible to the human eye, yet being personal and alive. This is what it means for God to be spirit, that he is immaterial in nature, that he has no physical parts or dimensions or boundaries, and that he is invisible to human eyes. Yet, despite that, he is personal and he is alive. Now, in your notes, you have uh, several blanks that you can fill in in the first point there. If you wouldn't mind, as we follow along here, if you would write that God, first of all, is immaterial immaterial, if you would. You could also put the word God is spiritual. But if you want to really define what that means, it means that he is immaterial. And this means that God has no physical uh, body, no body parts. Now, this is interesting. Um, Luke in, um, in Jesus, rather, in Luke 24, after his resurrection, you remember he presents himself to, to many. And the group that he was speaking with in Luke 24 that day were so terrified they thought they were seeing a spirit. And Jesus said in Luke 24, 36, he says, look, touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones. Clearly our Lord in his resurrected state had that physical body, a new body, a resurrected body, but they were so terrified they thought he was a spirit. And Jesus himself defines what a spirit is, that a spirit is that which does not have flesh and bones. I have flesh and, bo and bones. Touch me. See that, that I am not a spirit. And God being a spirit is, as he, as he has no uh, physical uh, body parts, he's not enclosed in a body. He doesn't have a head and he doesn't have hands and he doesn't have feet. All the things that we know to be true about our corporal existence. John 24 says that God, uh, John 424 says God is spirit. This is his essential nature. When you boil him down, he is a spiritual God. Now, atheists don't like this because atheists will attempt to ascribe all the spiritual aspects of life and our existence. They will try to as uh, ascribe that to various different juices or chemicals in the body that create different reactions. But the immaterial nature of man, such as love and such as emotions and such as rational thought, all of that comes from our spiritual nature, and we are made in the image of God, who is spirit. Now, the question here next in your note, in your notes is, what, what of all the verses that speak of God as having body parts, right? And you're familiar with, with many of these. If God is spirit and he has no body, why does he reveal himself in phrases like the hands of the Lord, as in Isaiah 65, 2? or the arm of the Lord, 
or or the feet of the Lord as they were uh, seen walking in the garden, Genesis 3, 8. Or, or how about the eyes of the Lord which roam to and fro, 1 Kings 8, 29. The eyes which roam about the earth. How about the ears of the Lord where we see in Isaiah 37, 17. Or the face of the Lord in Genesis 19. Is this just some type of contradiction in the Bible or... Or, or does God have body parts? Which is it? Well, the explanation is rather simple. God does not have physical body parts. It's not real body parts that is in reference here. These are figures of speech. These are what uh, we refer to as anthropomorphic expressions. Anthro anthropomorphic simply means expressions that man can understand. You see, God is so large and so transcendent above us, he has to come down, he has to condescend to our human speech, which really in comparison to him is pre-kindergarten baby talk is what it is. Kind of like uh, Goo Goo Gaga speech where, where a child could understand, a baby can understand it. God comes down and he uses terms that we can understand. And God is representing himself in ways that we uh, as as human mortal beings who exist in a body, we understand, and and uh, he uses human like features. Sometimes he uses uh, animal like features as well. He's referred to as having wings in Isaiah, and uh, and feathers, the pinions of God protecting you, as as mentioned. Well, does that mean God has feathers? Does that mean God has wings? Of course not. He's using figures of speech. So that we in our, in our smallness can grasp in some way his infinite greatness. And so as you have a list of body parts down there that have been ascribed to God, when we speak of God's hands, we are speaking of his active ability, his creative ability, that which he can perform, uh, that, that, that's, that which he uses rather to perform wonderful works, works of art, works of power come from the hands of the Lord. When we speak of the arms of the Lord, we we speak of strength and power and effectiveness to accomplish his will. When we speak of the right arm of the Lord, that is often the, the uh, extreme might and the extreme power and authority. You'll see in your list there, the feet of God. Uh, it's uh, Job references the, the feet of God walking upon the, the clouds of the whirlwind. I mean, powerful, powerful imagery here of, of God's feet, even though they're not his feet, but his position in the universe is what this is referring to, his dexterity and his ability to move and function and rule with power. The ears and the eyes of God, obviously, uh, that uh, uh, attributing uh, the ability to know all things, things, to hear all things, to see all things, and there are no secrets uh, before the Lord. This he, he knows and hears and sees everything, and there are no creatures hidden from his sight. Well, does this mean that his literal eyeballs are, are rolling around the entire earth? Of course not. This means, though, that he sees everything. And then the face of the Lord representing often the, the personal presence of God, and the presence of God which can be displayed in the face as as related to uh, the favor of God resting upon his people or the anger of God being manifested. Uh, it is often spoken the nostrils of God. And, and that, that is sometimes when we study the, uh, the wrath of God, the nostrils will come into play there and be manifested in, in anger. So all of those are, are simply anthropomorphic expressions, uh, that help us truth rather. He is spirit. He is not flesh. And this is invisible. God is invisible. 
This is a very important truth. If you'll write in the notes there, uh, the meaning of this is simply that, that uh, God cannot be seen by human eyes. Write that in the Diaz family living room. God is no doubt in this room. God is also in the room that you're in. God is collectively here, there, and everywhere. He is as much in the room that we're in today as he is in heaven. The fullness of God is amongst us today. But as much as he is here and there is no part of him left out, he cannot be seen by human eyes. God is everywhere, but there's a sense in which he is nowhere to be seen. And this is the, this is the beauty of the attributes, uh, the attribute of God's spirituality as it relates to his invisibility. There's a fascinating, fascinating truth about God that he is known as the invisible God. We're going to talk. Well, um, what's helpful if you want to turn back just a couple pages of Christ, but look at verse 18. This is fascinating. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten God, referring to Jesus, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. But no man has seen God at any time. Now, you can do a word study on this uh, Greek all day long, and what you find out is that what the Greek means is what the English says, no man has seen God at any time. And you would think that would just settle it, but oftentimes... Uh, uh, people will nonetheless still claim to see God. And, uh, you know, there's more in the book of John here. If you want to turn back the other way, um, John chapter 5 and verse 37. Would you take a look at that real quick? John 5, 37, we see some similar language. Our Lord is saying, And the Father who sent me, he has borne witness of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time, nor seen his form. Meaning he has a form, but you cannot see this. Uh, if you want to also jot down or move to John 6 and verse 46, Jesus says the same thing. He's making it very clear. He's got a very solid theology about the invisibility of God who is spirit. Uh, 646 says, Not that any man has seen the Father except the one who is from God, referring to himself. He has seen the Father, but no one has seen the Father. No, nobody on earth can claim that they have seen God because he is invisible. And uh, you can also jot down 1 John, no one has beheld God at any time. I mean, you can't be more clear than this. Uh, that's John 4.12, uh, 1 John 4.12, rather. No one has beheld God at any time. And this is why he makes that point. Well, how can you say you love God who you don't see and you don't love your brother who you do see? And he's making a point here. You can't say you love God who you can't see. He's invisible, even though you don't love your brother who is visible. So that's the argument there. And one more text. Uh, it's First John 4, 20. If someone says, oh, that's the point there, and hates his brother um, that... He cannot uh, claim to love God who he can't see. So God is invisible. And we have to we have to keep this in mind here that those who have claimed to see God, I just sometimes want to, did you see visibly? And so it's a contradiction in terms here. It may have been a dream, may have been a vision. And we see visions of God in the scripture. And but unfortunately, it may also have been a hallucination uh, heartburn and indigestion can sometimes uh, create uh, equal or even better experiences. And we just have to be cautious when people say, well, I saw God. 
And not to mention, um, uh, not even to mention Exodus 33 and verse 20, where God actually tells Moses that no man can see God and live. You see, God's power would be so all-consuming if if we did get a an unvarnished glimpse of him that we would be destroyed. That was Exodus 33, 20 to verses 23. And, and so this is our God. Colossians 1, 15 says, he is the invisible God. And um, so the question then that we have to answer is what, how are we to explain in the Bible what of those who saw God, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm using air quotes here, what of those who saw God in the Bible? Well, the answer, the explanation to that is simply this, that they saw a limited manifestation of his presence. They saw a fraction of him is what, what this is. When, when there's reference to seeing God in the Bible. And he did this many, many times. We don't have time to go through all the examples, but you know, early on, God, God led his children, led the children of Israel by the uh, pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. You remember the incident with the burning bush and Moses, but, but he's manifesting himself in a limited fashion. You remember Moses said, I want to see more. I want to see, I want to see the full picture. And God says, I can't show you the full picture but I'll show you a piece of my glory. I'll put you in the cleft of the rock and I'll pass by and you'll just see the sliver, kind of the fringes of God. And you'll remember that in Judges 13, 22, Manoah, who when he had seen the angel of the Lord, which I believe was a pre-incarnate version of uh, a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus, when he saw the angel of the Lord in, in uh, Judges 13, 22, he said, we shall surely die. He's speaking to his wife. We shall surely die. Why, Manoah? What's the problem here? For we've seen God. And obviously, this was a limited manifestation of the personhood of God. Uh, we can't see the real deal and live. And of course, his, his wife with sound counsel reminded him uh, that, uh, no, uh, we're, we're not we're not going to die because if uh, we were going to die, we'd be dead already having seen the Lord. So you can't see the real deal and live. We are not made to sustain that sight. Even the angels in Isaiah chapter 6, which we're going to look at in a few weeks from now, the angels themselves have to veil their faces and they are actually made with wings that will veil and and cover uh, the, the portions of that magnificent glory of God, and they are in his presence day and night singing. And so, so uh, we believe the words of 1 Timothy 1.17, which says, Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. We serve the invisible God. Now, a fair question to ask is, will we see God in heaven? If this is the case now, will we see God in heaven? Matthew 5, 8 says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And 1 John 3, 2 says, we shall see him as he is. And I just believe that when we are completely glorified and we are completely finished and retooled in our resurrection body, there will be a sense in which we are better enabled to see God. But yet I still believe we will see with a certain amount of, of, of veiled um, limitation just by mere nature of the fact that we are still human. We are still finite. And the infinite eternal God 
would would still consume angels or humans in his presence if he if they if he gave the full array of his of his glory but that's just more opinion there and that's just for free yes i do believe that eventually there will be an aspect in which we will be able to look upon god but never in his full unfiltered uh glory so god is immaterial god is invisible and then i want to just leave us this morning with a third point that's very important to understand with the spirituality of God. And that is that God is personal. Would you write that in under point three? That God is personal. This is probably one of the most beautiful parts of the spirituality of God. When we speak of the spirituality of God, we, we understand that he is immaterial. God is spirit, John 4, 24. And that God is invisible. But will you look at John 4, 24 there? It, we we could miss this in a few different places here. It says in verse 21, rather, when Jesus says, An hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem you shall worship, note this, the Father. And then uh, verse 23, An hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and truth. Uh, for such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Are you following all of the indicators here of the personhood of God? You see, God is not this stoic sovereign sitting in heaven almost like a ball of energy, but, but God is really revealed as Father, and he's revealed with the personal pronoun his, him. This is this is related to the personality of God. God is spirit and tied around that spirituality of God is a personal father who is a real person and who makes us as persons who can relate to him. And this is the relational aspect of God, that he is a person. This is a communicable attribute of God, his personhood. This means that he is personal. This means that he is alive. He is a living being. And he has revealed himself as a person, a living, thinking being who has thoughts and who has emotions, really just like you and I do, only in a perfect sense. So I want to expound this a little bit here. In your notes, you should have some three, three blanks underneath that. And first of all, I'd like you to write in that God has a mind. This is part of what it means to be a person, is that you have a mind. God has a mind. And you say, well, how do you know that, Eli? Well, Romans uh, 11.34 uh, uh, says, who has known the mind of God? That means he has a mind. And there's many other scriptures I could take you to that prove that God has a mind, the mind of God. This means that he has an intellect and that he has uh, infinite intelligence, infinite genius, that God is brilliant, and that God thinks and that he reasons and that he comprehends and that he compares and, and he assesses things. God sizes things up. He processes, he concludes, he scrutinizes and he makes judgments. And those are all aspects of, of one who has a mind. God has supreme knowledge because God is an eternal being and he has an eternal mind. So it's important to understand that part of God being a person is that he has a mind. But will you also add under point two there, underneath that point, that God also has emotions. Uh, 
God is not just this rational being in the universe that kind of like uh, an extreme version of Spock, as it were, uh, that only, only thinks and processes, but God also has emotions. God is not, as I said, this stoic sovereign up in the universe playing celestial chess with the mere pedestrians of the universe, uh, of, of the world, rather. God, God actually is an emotional God. He is not emotionally neutered. He is not disconnected. He is not cool and aloof with his creation, especially those he has made in his image. God, in fact, rather feels. God loves. God hates. God rejoices. God takes pleasure in. God is honored by certain things. God is grieved by other things. He is angered by some things. God is pleased. It is possible to please God. And God has compassion and God has concern. And the list could go on and on and on, which reveals to us that God is a God of emotions. Sometimes we will pick on certain individuals who maybe are kind of, kind of brainy in one aspect and are kind of all, all mind, as it were, all logic. Or sometimes we'll pick on people who are a little bit more of the emotional side of uh, the image of God. And we'll say, well, if you, I just wish you weren't so emotional or whatever the case may be. But we have to understand that God is both rational and emotional. And he, those he makes in his image reflect who he is. God has a mind. God has emotions. Thirdly, would you add in under this last point here? that God has a will. God has a will. Now we think obviously about the will of God. And I don't want to take too much time explaining this aspect because there are a number of components to the will of God. But I just simply want to uh, point out that God has a will. And what this means for us is that God makes decisions. God uh, purposes certain things. We read about God purposing certain things in his heart and God chooses things. You see, this is the, this is the fascinating thing that sometimes man will not acknowledge with God is that we acknowledge that we have a will and sometimes we have a very, uh, stiff will, if you, if you will, uh, stiff necked will. But oftentimes we will attribute the ability to make decisions to us. But we will not allow the God who made us in his image to have a similar capacity. Well, we must understand, loved ones, that God has a will and he can make decisions and, and he can, ha he can purpose certain things in his heart. And, uh, he can, how about this? He can choose certain paths, certain courses, certain destinies. He can plan things. He can determine things. He can resolve things. He can act upon things. He can visit certain things. He can pass over other things. God, God can answer people. He can comfort people. He can love people. And yet he can also um, uh, make final determinations when it comes to certain judgments and aspects regarding people and regarding his will being violated. And these are truths that are attributed to God in scripture. A rock doesn't have this. Uh, a, a piece of lumber, a two by four, electricity doesn't even have this aspect of a will and being able to make various decisions, but a person does. A person has this ability and God has this ability. We derive our personhood from God. We have a mind, we have emotions, we have will, and, and God has these as well because we are made 
in his image. And as we just conclude this morning, the, the application, of course, is again found in John 4, that this is the God who is seeking worshipers. God is spirit, and he is, he is seeking spiritual worshipers, spirit-minded, spirit-filled worshipers who are ready and willing to worship the Lord. Now, as we conclude this this morning, as we give ourselves to the Lord in this way, this is also the key to all of our relationships as well. I wish I had more time to discuss this element, but of course we know that the Father is perfectly contained in the Trinity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and have a permanent and eternal relationship. But God brings us into this relationship and he brings us into this relationship with one another. To be a spiritually um, minded, spiritually built person, as it were, means that you are in relationships. And I think this is part of the challenge of this scourge that really is upon um, our world and our nation and, and which the church is feeling as well, because we are individuals made in God's image and we we long to be with one another and we are not designed to ever be separated uh, from one another. But during this time, it has tested this. And I think for good cause is, is uh, coming out of this, that we are seeing the importance of relationships, especially at this time. And I believe God will see us through this. Well, the bottom line is that our God, because he is a spiritual God, our God can be known, our God can be worshipped, and he can be worshipped by you. And how is this done? How are we, it almost as if we really want to see this God, would you not agree? That we so long to see him, but he's invisible. What is the answer to this? How can we resolve this long standing desire that man has to see God? Well, the answer, beloved, is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. The answer that we so long for is found even in the book of John here. If you wouldn't mind, as we close, if we just look at a couple of scriptures here, John 14. You'll remember this interaction here. John 14 is the story of Philip interacting with Jesus. And you'll remember that Jesus says in John 14, <clears throat> this is where he's comforting his disciples. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. He talks about the many dwelling places that are in my father's house. This close intimacy that Jesus had with the father. And then he says some amazing words in verse seven here. He says, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. This is fascinating here. Jesus is saying, you've seen the father. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, in I can almost sense a little bit of exasperation in his voice. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, yet you have not come to know me, Philip? Now keep in mind, this is right after Philip had just said, Lord, show us the Father. And Jesus says, have I been with you for so long? And yet you say, show us the Father. And in, in an amazing economy of words, our Lord answers this dilemma. And he says, he who has seen me has seen the Father. How do you say, show us the Father? This is an amazing, amazing truth that our Lord is, is saying here. That he who has seen me, that is Jesus, 
has seen the Father. Well, how can this be? This can be because of Hebrews 1 and verse 3. He, that is Jesus, is the radiance of his glory. And note this, the exact representation of his nature. Folks, do you want to see God? Do you want to see who the Father is? You see the Father in the Son. The Son has made known the Father, and he is the radiance of his glory, according to the writer of Hebrews, and the exact representation of his nature. That is powerful, powerful theology there, that Christ is the exact representation of God. Colossians 1.15 says, He, that is Christ, is the image of the invisible God. Here's how we honor the invisibility of God, but being able to see God, it is the Son. It is Christ. It is, it is the Son whom the Father sends. All the fullness of the Godhead dwells in bodily form, in Christ. And note this, in him you have been made complete. These are powerful, powerful truths, beloved, about the nature of God. That in Christ dwells the fullness of deity. And in Christ we are in him. And we now, therefore, have been made complete. And I just want to close with one final section of scripture in 1 John 1. This, this is amazing truth. Oh, to be those who actually saw Christ with their own eyes. Wouldn't that be something? We see him through the eyes of faith today, but there was a generation. There was a generation that lived. And John says, I was of this generation. What was from the beginning, that's Christ. What we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, note this, what we beheld with our hands, handled concerning the word of life. What a privilege it would have been to be in that generation that day that lived and moved and walked and, and touched the Lord Jesus Christ himself. To hear the, the, the reverberations of his voice landing on our ears. And, and John says, I was there. But here's the great thing, verse 2. And he says, that life was manifested and we have seen and we bear witness and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and which was manifested to us. And what we saw and what we heard, we, uh, we proclaim to you also that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we write these things to you that our joy may be made complete. You see, there's a sense, beloved, in which we, we do see God. There's a sense in which... God, although he is invisible, is manifested in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have fellowship with the Father, and we have fellowship with Christ, and we have fellowship even with one another. This is the personality of God. Though he is invisible, he can live, and we can live in him, and he lives uh, within us. Well, I'm running out of time here. We need to, to move on. I just wanted to close with this last hymn here to kind of bring a little bit of music to this. I'm not about to sing it here, but... This is, of course, in your notes as well, and you can meditate on this. And we'll just close with these words here. Immortal, invisible, God only wise, in light inaccessible, hid from our eyes. Most blessed, most glorious, the ancient of days, almighty, victorious, thy great name we praise. Unresting, unhasting, and silent as light, nor wanting, nor wasting, thou rulest in might. Thy justice like mountains high soaring above, thy clouds which are fountains of goodness and love. 
To all life thou givest, to both great and small. In all life thou livest, the true life of all. We blossom and flourish as leaves on the tree, and wither and perish, but not changes thee. Great Father of glory, pure Father of light, thine angels adore thee, all veiling their sight. All praise we would render, O oh, help us to see, tis only the splendor of light hideth thee. That's a wonderful hymn of the faith. Reflect on, on that through the week. And uh, I just pray God's blessing upon you as you reflect on God's spirituality. Again, be in touch. Uh, if you have questions or anything you want addressed, uh, we'll make an effort. And I think I'm going to be doing a midweek uh, little reach out here. I think sometimes uh, we need to to just uh, be encouraged midweek as well. So pray for me that I'd be able to, to do that. And uh, I'm going to just close us in prayer uh, briefly as we continue to rest in the amazing, amazing nature of God, our spiritual God. Pray with me together as we close. Heavenly Father, we just uh, give you so much praise and thanksgiving. Thank you for your nature. Thank you that, that you have chosen to reveal yourself as the invisible God. Oh, Lord, the amazing complexities of your nature, yet your word makes this so clear to us. Father, we just pause in wonder, love, and praise, Lord. We know that you have revealed yourself to, to receive even more glory, that you don't need our praise, but nonetheless, we give it to you. Father, help each and every saint here within the hearing of my voice to be encouraged by this message, be strengthened by this message, and understand that this really is the basis of our relationship to you, that you are a spiritual God, and therefore we can uh, relate to you spiritually. Father, I pray for any soul listening today that doesn't know you, that today would be the day of their salvation, that today they would see you brilliantly, though you are invisible, but that they would see you through the manifestation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, may we all look to Christ this day, this week, especially during this time. Give us strength, give us comfort, and give us even more hope, Lord, as we fix our eyes upon Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Lord, we, we turn this all over to you now. Lord, thank you for this time of worship, and uh, we bless your name for this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, folks, you have a great week, and we'll be in touch again soon. Bye-bye.